I'll start off the first topic like this. How did the hipster burn his tongue? He drank his coffee before it was cool. Okay. You know, like the people who like things that are obscure, anything that is um, anything that is mainstream, anything that is popular, you know, they, ah, they don't like that because that's 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 uh, for the masses. I, my my tastes are more obscure. My tastes are more unique. So I only you know if, a, if if I like a band and then they become popular. Oh no, I don't like them anymore. They sold out. Okay. So I want to talk about today the transition in the life of Avram Avinu when he went from obscurity to popularity. Okay. So let's look. In Yud Zayin, we're talking about Perig Yud Zayin, chapter 17 of Bereshis, Posik Hay, and Hashem says, Veloi Yikore Eid Es Shimcha Avram, you will no longer be called Avram, Vohoye Shimcha Avraham, your name's going to be Avraham. What's the difference between Avram and Avraham as far as the letters? The hay. The hay, right. An additional hay. Ki av hamoin goyim nesaticha. I'm going to make you the father or the leader of a multitude of nations. Hamoin means masses. So the hay is hamoin. In fact, Rashi says that av hamoin goyim is loshin neitrikin shal shmoi. Neitrikin is like a contraction. It's not. It's, it's sort of like a like a Fuzzy Roshatevis, you know, like a, a Roshatevis is the first letter only of each word. And Neitrikin is sometimes not necessarily the first letter, but it's a letter from a word and sort of smushed together and shortened. So Avraham is a Neitrikin of Av Hamain Goyim, the father or the leader of masses or multitudes of nations. Now, contrast that with the previous name, Avram, which Hashem says, you're not going to be Avram anymore, you're going to be Avraham. What's, what is Avram? It does, doesn't say here what Avram is, but in Kabbalah it, it explains that Av means father. Father in Kabbalah is Chochmah. Chochmah we, all, we always translate it as wisdom, but it's not really the best translation. Chochmah is ingenuity or inventiveness. In Kabbalah, sometimes Chochmah is called the Baraka Mavrik, the lightning flash. And the reason it's called Av, called Father, is because it is the initial stage of any process. Whether it's a human being planning a, some type of an endeavor. So first you have that flash of an idea, that inspiration, that vision, which is called the father of the process that you're about to engage in, or whether we're talking about the archetype <coughs> about Hashem in the Seder Eshtalshlis, the, 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 the way that the worlds evolve one from another, the process of creation, how Hashem creates reality, something from nothing. So the first sphera, the first phase of every world is called Chochmah because that is the initial inception or, or uh, vision 
for what will follow from it. So, at any rate, the point is that Av, father, means Chochma, this inventiveness. Um, and Ram, Ram means... Uh, it's interesting because we say Bakol Ram in a, in, a, in a high voice, but a high voice doesn't mean uh, like a high peach, high pitch, but it means like turn the volume up, loud. It means loud. So, okay, so it's high. Ram means high. Like we talk about um, exalting Hashem, Reimamu, exalt him, lift him up, right? So Ram means high. So Av Ram means high wisdom or exalted wisdom. In other words, what does it mean? You're talking about a person who didn't go to Hebrew school. He didn't have a Bible to read from. He didn't have any teachers. In fact, he was surrounded by pagans and idolatry. Everyone in the world around him told him that reality is made of many different forces and powers. And on his own, not through prophecy, because he didn't have prophecy until he was 75, on his own intuition and critical thinking, his genius mind came up with a unified theory of everything. He figured out that it's impossible that the sun and the moon and the stars and the wind and the rain should be different separate forces, that ultimately there is one force behind everything. He was the genius, he was the Einstein who figured out just through his own thinking. Much later he became a prophet and Hashem revealed himself to him. But Initially, who was Avram? Avram was this unpeered genius. He did not have anyone else who was on his level. He literally figured out the mystery of reality, how it all works. And he figured it out intellectually, through deduction, through reasoning. So Avram is this crazy genius who really, by, by all rights, should be in some research lab somewhere surrounded by chalkboards writing out you know his formulae that nobody else can understand and yet what happens he decides his his message or rather his insight is important enough to be a message and he wants to take it to others <coughs> and not only does he figure out how to popularize the message but Hashem then tells him you're not going to be Avram anymore. You're not going to be this exalted intellect that nobody can understand. You're going to become Avraham, Avhamayn Goyim. You're going to become the populist leader. The person the masses relate to. That's very interesting, that, that shift from one extreme to the other. <clears throat> now, I want to point out something very interesting. If you understand that Avram means exalted intellect, and Avraham means Avhamayn Goyim, the popular leader of the masses, if he really went <clears throat> from one type of personality to another, why is he called Avraham? What's that Resh doing there? There's no Resh in the phrase Avhamayn Goyim. The Reish is not part of the phrase that describes his new mode of being. The Reish is an artifact. It's a relic left over from the word Ram, which means exalted. But I thought he's not being exalted anymore. He's bringing it down and he's taking it to the masses. So by all rights, 
when he changed his mode of operation, he should have become from Avram to Avham. Avham and Goyim. The Reish is alluding to the Ram, the exaltedness, which seemingly he dispatched and has now moved on to a new way of being so that the regular folks can understand him. You understand the question? Okay. So, let me pose it to you like this. Imagine you're running for office. In a democratic system, you have to get elected. You have to have votes. That means people have to support your agenda. So here's my question. Once you get into office, do you do what you think is right, or do you do what will get you elected again? Now you're oh, come on, I'm not that corrupt, I'm not that venal, I'm not that cynical. Why would I only do what gets me elected again? Well, hold on a second, play it out. If you really believe in your cause and you want to be able to implement policy, you have to be elected. If you want to be elected, you have to do the stuff that people like. So if you don't do what the people like, you're not going to be in a position to do the things that you think are necessary. So the question is, how do you balance that? How do you please the people? How do you give them what they want, but not compromise your principles? Not pander and sell out? Good question, huh? Okay, since that's not really what I'm here to, this is not like a political coaching, uh, this is a <laughs> partial class, that was just a marshal. I use it as a metaphor because I think it's an easy metaphor to relate to. But let me tell you what I'm really talking about. I'm talking about Jewish continuity. Let's say you are responsible for Jewish continuity. And by the way, you are. Each one of us is responsible for Jewish continuity. <coughs> Let's say you are responsible for making sure that this tradition that started at Sinai 3,300 some odd years ago is going to continue for another generation. So here's the conflict. Do you make Judaism as accessible as possible? As open a door as possible? At the risk of compromising the values of Judaism? Or... Do you retain the integrity of the tradition, even if that, for all intents and purposes, is going to exclude people who will not be able to conform? And this is not a theoretical question whatsoever. This is a real question that goes on day to day. I have a friend, a Reform rabbi, who told me, he says, you guys, you don't, you don't understand. When people come to me and they ask me to uh, perform an intermarriage, I don't want, if I say no, they're going to leave. They're never going to come back. So, you know, maybe you think that I'm uh, bending rules where I shouldn't, but I'm trying to keep the people in the fold. What are you doing for Jewish continuity? And, you know, if you listen to that argument in a vacuum, it could sound somewhat compelling. It sounds somewhat coming. You, you know, if you think about it, I mean, if, if, look, if it weren't Yiddishkeit, if it weren't something divine, if it were just a product that you were marketing, and somebody told, told you, you know, the way you're marketing your product is too exclusive. You're not gonna, you don't have enough of a base. You don't have enough of a clientele. Make it less exclusive. Distribute it in more places. Lower the price. Uh, maybe, you know, lower the quality of the product. On the other extreme, 
On the other extreme, I've, he I've heard people say that the uh, exact opposite. How can you do things that make Judaism um, popular or appealing if it's not regular, authentic, if it's not, like, <coughs> like for, 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 for instance, I'll tell you an actual example. Um, I have a friend, Shliach in a small town, and uh, on Shavuos, Shavuos is a, some, sometimes, often is a weekday, and it's hard to get a crowd on a weekday to come daven on Yom Tif, but uh, there's a, the Torah reading is the Aseris Adibris, the Ten, the Ten Commandments. So uh, usually that's during the service, during uh, you know, the end of Shachras. So, uh, but what he did is he made a special Torah reading in the afternoon at 3.45, exactly after the local public school let out, and had a minion and had a Torah reading at 3.45, followed by an ice cream party. And uh, there was a nearby Orthodox rabbi who told him, whoever heard of a Torah reading in the, in the afternoon, that's not the proper time to do it. He said, but, but I had a hundred kids came and they, they heard the Ten Commandments. He says, so what? Doesn't justify it. He says, you're telling me you wouldn't want these hundred kids to come? He says, exactly. It's better that one of them comes at the right time than a hundred come at the wrong time. Okay. At any rate, I'm not here to figure out how to establish policy. My point is to illustrate this is a real conflict. It's a real conflict. How do we make sure that Judaism is an open enough door that people will continue, the Jewish people obviously, the Jews will continue to preserve their tradition, but how do we make sure we don't sell out? How do we make sure we don't, God forbid, compromise and dilute what we were given? So, I'll tell you a story. This story is not like earth-shattering. It's not like some big dramatic story. It's a, just, it's a story. It's a thing that happened. There is the story. Um, <clears throat> there was a, a family in Montreal, Canada. And um, they were not religious. But they were slowly becoming closer to Yiddishkeit. Their, their teenage son was becoming closer faster than the rest of them. And the basic reason was because he was in yeshiva. So the teenage son was in yeshiva, and uh, he was getting older, and, and um, his father was starting to think about tachlis, about, you know, how to make a living. The father was a pharmacist. The father owned a pharmacy, worked for himself, and he had worked very, very hard to be in a position where he worked for himself and could support his family. And in his mind, what he had done to uh, build this business and create this opportunity was in order to, to be able to hand it over to his son. So basically, he wanted his son to become a pharmacist and to take over the business. The thing is that the pharmacy was open on Shabbos. And it was impossible, at least in his mind, to close the pharmacy and still make, make a profit. So he was very conflicted about this. Uh, he knew his son was in yeshiva and really didn't want to be forced into a job where he was not going to keep Shabbos. The father felt guilty. He didn't, he didn't want to force the son into it either. On the other hand, you've got to be realistic. You, gotta, you, know, you can't starve to death. So uh, 
the father decided he's going to the top. The boy was going to a Lubavitcher yeshiva there in Montreal. He says, I'm going to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So he went to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And in Yechidus he said, I'm really conflicted about the rate of growth of Judaism in my family and how sustainable it is on a practical level. So you see, he's presenting the conflict. He's present so what are you supposed to tell the guy? What are you supposed to tell him? On the one hand, if you tell him, I'm sorry, Shabbos is Shabbos. Maybe you'll lose a family. On the other hand, what are you supposed to say? Eh, Shabbos is not, not that big of a deal. Or, which way do you go? So here's what the Rebbe told him. The Rebbe didn't even specifically address Shabbos. The Rebbe told him, do every mitzvah that you're comfortable with and one mitzvah that you're uncomfortable with. And that's it. And everything will be fine. That's it. Do everything, you're, obviously if you're comfortable with it, no reason why you shouldn't be doing it. And then just do one mitzvah that you're uncomfortable with. You choose. You choose. So he said, fine, no problem. He took the advice, and what happened? What happened? If you do something long enough, you become comfortable. <laughs> so after a while, whatever mitzvah that was the uncomfortable one became one of the comfortable ones. So he needed a new one to be the uncomfortable one. And he would do that for a while. And that became one of the comfortable ones. So he needed a new uncomfortable one. Until finally Shabbos became one of the comfortable ones and it wasn't even a discussion anymore. So this, <coughs> this is the lesson. The idea that there's a conflict between embracing every single Jew and making a path to Yiddishkeit for every single Jew, on one hand, and retaining the integrity of Yiddishkeit, on the other hand, it's not a real conflict. It's a false conflict, because ultimately we can do both. Ultimately, if we have the right approach, we can do both without compromising anything. We, what, what we do, we take everyone where they are, Whatever level they're at, you're welcome. You're, come on in. We welcome you as you are. And at the same time, we don't diminish and dilute, God forbid, one iota, what Torah actually is and what it's about. So you bring the people to Torah, like Hillel said, love the people and be makarav, draw them near to Torah. Not chasvashon, to draw the Torah to them, draw them to the Torah, which means incrementally, <coughs> bit by bit. So that's how Avraham made his transition from somebody who was on a level of Avram, totally unrelatable to the world because he was too big of a genius, and became Avhamayn Goyim, but he wasn't Avham, he was Avraham. Because even when he became Avhamayn Goyim, he became the one who was leading the masses he kept the reish of Ram, which means high and lofty, because his message was never diluted. He was able to do both. He was able to do both. He was able to embrace everyone. And remember, Avraham wasn't even dealing with just Jews. He was dealing with the whole world, and it was before the giving of the Torah. So how much more so when we're talking about our brothers and sisters who are all part of this covenant, whether they know it or they don't know it, we have an even easier job than Avraham, and we can 
make a path for every single Jew to Yiddishkeit, but retain the integrity of authentic Yiddishkeit. Okay, so that's, that's one lesson. I'm going to try, I'm going to endeavor to do a second lesson right now. <coughs> this guy sees his friend, he hasn't seen him in uh, 10 years. He says, what's going on? He says, I got divorced. He says, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. What else is going on? He says, well, I got, I got remarried. He says, oh, who, who did you marry? He said, my ex-wife. He said, well, why, why do you, if you divorced her, why did you remarry her? He said, for a second wife, she's good enough. Okay, so the question is, when is separation not really a separation? When is severance not really severance? When is breaking ties really not breaking ties? So I want to look at this week's Parsha. Perek Yud Gimel. Yeah, Posok Ches Entes, eight and nine. Okay. Vayeme Avram el Light. Avram said to Light, Light was his uh, nephew. They had a little quarrel because uh, pasture. They were both sheep, uh, they were both uh, shepherds. So he says, Listen, um, let there not be a quarrel between you and I and between our shepherds, the guys who work for us. Because we are, we are brothers, meaning we are relatives. I got a solution for you. Is not the whole land in front of you? He put it separate Please, from, from me. Imasmael ve'emina. If you go to the left, I will go right. Vim hayomin. If you go right, va'asmila, I will go left. You read these verses, these two verses here, and it's pretty apparent what just happened. Avram told Lot, "This town ain't big enough for the two of us." He said, "We got to separate. I don't care where you go." But wherever you go, I'm going to the opposite place. That's what I read. That's what it sounds like. We can't be together. So pick, pick wherever you want to go. You, you, you go first, and then I'm going to the opposite place. That's, that's what I read. Now, as Jews, we understand that there's a Tiddush about Peh. And even for Pshat, even for literal meaning of a verse, you can't just open up a chumash, and start reading and assume you understand simple pshat. So, look at what Rashi. Rashi is the simple meaning, the most elementary meaning of every verse for a five-year-old student of chumash. What does Rashi say here? Im hasmoil vemina. If to the left, meaning if you go left, then I'll go right. Bechel asheteshev, wherever you may dwell, I will not distance myself from you. And I will stand up for you as a shield and a helper. And in the end, he needed it. Light needed it. Like it says, 
Avram heard that his brother, his relative, was captured, prisoner of war, etc. And Avram came and he rescued his, his relative. I read those verses. Those verses sounded like Avram is telling Light, get away from me. Pick your side so I can go to the opposite. But I look in Tedesh and look in Rasha, which is the simple meaning of every verse, and he says it very, almost like the opposite. I mean, it's the opposite of what I think I just read. Rashi says, if you go left, I'll go right means I won't ever be far from you. And not only will I not be far from you, I will be available to you as a shield and as a helper. So what's, what's going on here? So I want to tell you something like this. Tell you a story. There was one time a Gemara Shir at Hebrew University, not a class, but something informally that was going on among the faculty, and it was being taught by Rabbi Steinsaltz. And many different intellectuals, professors, academics, they came to this shir. There was one guy who was very, very uh, secular, and Rabbi Steinsaltz was asking him to come to the shir. So he says, no, it's not for me. He says, why not? He says, uh, he says you don't understand. I'm secular. He says, that's fine. We have other secular professors come to the shir. So the, the guy says, you don't understand. To the extent. I eat pork. I eat pork on Shabbos. Exclusively. Specifically. Right? <laughs> Specifically on Shabbos. So Rabbi Steinzelt smiles and he says, so you have your way of keeping Shabbos? I have my way of keeping Shabbos. <laughs> the point is like this. There's no Gentile in the world who sits down for, for lunch uh, on a Wednesday afternoon and, he, and the pork sandwich is brought to him and says, you know what, waiter, wrap it up. I'm going to save this for Friday night for Kiddush and make a statement. Only a Jew would say, I eat pork on Shabbat exclusively, right? I make a point. <laughs> what's, the, what's, the, what's the idea here? You, you have your way of keeping Shabbos, I have my way of keeping The point is, Shabbos is an Indian. It's a concept to this guy. Okay, so right now his relationship with, with Hashem is a little bit dysfunctional, but it's a relationship. His relationship with Shabbos is a little dysfunctional, but it's a relationship. Shabbos means something to him. To the extent he goes out of his way, he eats pork on Shabbos. How many times have I gone over to people and, excuse me, sir, would you like to put on tefillin? And, I mean, 90% of the time, it's successful. But 10% of the time, it's, it's not so smooth. And people, people decline. And in fact, in the 10% of people who decline, I'd say 10% of the 10%, meaning 1% of the, of, the, of the total, vehemently decline. And I've been cursed out and I've been told in very strong terms, get away from me, how dare you, how dare you? And I'll tell you my response. My response is not to condemn this person and say, oh, you know what, I offered you Yiddishkeit and you rejected it. You're off the list, fine. That's it, you made, you made, your, you made your bad go lie in it, you know? No, God forbid. What have, what have I seen? I've seen that me and this other Jew our brothers, we're so connected that we both have very passionate stances on the same issue. I feel very strongly that he should put on tefillin. He feels very strongly that he shouldn't. But the fact that we both take a stance on the same issue 
is a commonality, not a separation. It's like today, the political climate today, with the right and the left, and how divided everybody is. To the point where people are, you know, I, I, I unfriended them on Facebook because of their crazy, you know, political posts. Okay, I, I hear that, and maybe you don't need stress in your life, but is that the way that we're supposed to be? Are you supposed to create the way they call it the echo chamber? So we hear more and more and more of only the messages that we already believe in. No, that's not how it's supposed to be. Avram Avino modeled it for us, and he told light. If you go to the left, I go to the right. If you go to the right, I go to the left. You know what that means? It's very interesting. If I give you directions, if you say to me, for instance, <coughs> how, do you, how do you get to Cedarhurst? And uh, somebody says, well, you head down uh, Central Avenue, or you head down the Turnpike, and when you get to Central Avenue, you take a left. Well, that's probably good advice because most people are coming from up there, coming from north. But what if they're coming from the south? You told them to take a left, and they're going away from Cedarhurst. You can say east and west, north and south. Those are objective spatial designations where it doesn't matter where a person is situated because they're constants. When you say left and right, left and right only are terms that can be used when we have the same frame of reference. The east of the building, the west of the building, the north, the south, those, those it doesn't matter which way we're facing. But if I say, it's, uh, you know, where, where did I leave my phone? It's on the left side of the room. It means we're facing the same direction. In order to use terms left and right, we have to have a common frame of reference. So that's the point. The point is, even when we have opposite views on an issue, vehemently opposite views, passionately, vehemently held beliefs, on issues, but at least we're passionate about the same issues. So we're not supposed to separate from each other. To the contrary, we remain united in our common passion, even if we have completely different views on the issue, to the extent, like Avram told Light, not only will I be there, I won't, I, I won't distance myself, I'll be there for you, but I'll come through for you as a mugging and as an azer, as a shield and as a protector. And that's the way we have to feel about people who have radically different views on the issues that are most important to us, be they political or religious or whatever it is. Whether it's because we're all Americans and we have to look out for each other or on a much deeper level, Lahavdil, talking about Jews that were one nation, really one body, one people, one person. The Jewish people is a person. We cannot allow issues to divide us. To the contrary, like Avram told Light, our separation itself shows that we have a common frame of reference. We can still use terms left and right because we're facing the same direction, even if we have radically opposite views. How do we know this is what Avram is telling Light? Because it's Parshas Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha means... On a mystical level, on a spiritual level, it means self-transcendence. Hashem tells Avram, go for yourself. And then a few verses later, you know what it says? It says that he brought his entire household with him. If Lech Lecha was supposed to be an act of abandoning 
his old self, then why does he bring everyone and everything with him on the road where he's going? It's like going camping and bringing a generator and a microwave, right? But that's the whole point. Lech Lecha means self-transcendence. Self-transcendence doesn't mean escaping your old self. Self-transcendence means bringing all the old stuff with you and being able to have a new relationship with it. So in other words, if Avram were to say to Light, you know what, I just can't have people around me who have such different views on reality. That's called escaping or leaving behind or abandoning parts of your life or relationships in your life that uh, you don't agree with. Self-transcendence, lech lecha, really being selfless and really surrendering means you're able to bring with you all the relationships from your past, all the people, even no matter what stance they have on issues, and maintain those connections. If you're, if you're truly self-transcendent, then you're able to have people in your life who don't agree with you. And in fact, if you're truly, truly self-transcendent, really egoless, really selfless, then you can be close with and, and look out for the benefit of those who you disagree with. Anyways, those are two teachings from this week's Parsha, and uh, they're easy to apply. No, I shouldn't say easy to apply. They're easy to find opportunities to apply, is what I meant. The opportunities to apply these arise all day long, and uh, the, uh, the message of the Parsha should give us the, the, the kayak to do so. Okay, thanks everybody.